Okay. Well, we are uh, asking a very pertinent question these days at Redemption Hill, which is this. How does the Church of Jesus Christ respond to these disasters and these fires that have uh, surrounded our county and other counties in our state? And we're going to be taking a few weeks to answer that question. Obviously, it's a big question. Um, And last week we saw that followers of Christ wait with a patient hope for the eventual return of Jesus Christ. That is our rock-solid hope, is his return. And we always have that. No matter how loud the groaning of creation gets, we have that constant and sure hope. But this area is also facing long-term challenges, as you know, that will last years. And this will require us to function like the salt that God has created us to be here and now. So yes, we must keep our hope in heaven, but we also have to keep our eyes on the situation that's here on earth. We're going to be both hopeful and helpful, is what we're trying to be at the same time. And I know there's, there's seasons of both of those things, right, where we're just reflecting more on the, the end and when Christ is going to return, and then there's the urgency of what's around us. So how do we do that? How do we keep our eyes on the situation here on the earth? How do we direct our loves and our concern? I know many of you have felt what I have felt, which is I want to do something, but there's a billion things to pick from. And so what do I do? How do I move forward? And so our second response to this larger question, how do we respond to these fires, is, is going to be answered in this way. To give ourselves to the people around us. And specifically to the church of Jesus Christ. How do we respond to these fires? We give ourselves to the people around us. And specifically to those in our church family. Would you stand with me if you're able. As I read from 1 John chapter 3 verses 11 through 24. That's our text for this morning. I'll read it for us. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you didn't bring a Bible. There's some in the lobby. Please uh, grab one. Uh, And follow along. Here's what it says. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as 
he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. You may be seated. A quick road map for where we're going this morning, and then we'll go there. First, we're going to see that John presents two natures, a self-serving nature or an evil nature and a self-giving nature or a good nature. Second, we're going to see how to become a self-giver. And last, we're going to talk about practicing self-giving. Self-giving is, is my way of referring to love this morning, and love has so many mushy uh, definitions that self-giving, I think, is a helpful way to capture it. So, first, John talks uh, in very black and white terms. If you've read his gospel or read his letters, you kind of know that's kind of his knack. That's kind of his thing. It's light and it's darkness, and it's Satan in the spirit. It's good and it's evil. That's just his way. He tells us in this letter why he's writing it, which is always helpful to know what a passage means, right? So in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to define what the term Christian means to Christians. He wants to help them understand. In verse three, uh, or chapter 3, verse 19, we see that kind of motive or that intent when he says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. He says it over and over again, even in our passage. By this we'll know. Know what? Know that you're a follower of Christ. This is a great book to send people um, who are struggling with assurance to understand some concrete ways that this works. And so John's a real uh, clear-cut kind of guy. And so he divides humanity into two groups. Those who are of evil and those who are of the truth. If you see in the beginning there in verse 12... He gives us an example of this person, Cain, who we find earlier in, uh, much earlier in Genesis. It says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. He's in that category. But later on in verse 19, it says, we are of the truth. Or there's other places where uh, eternal life abides in us, or God's love is in those who follow him. We're of the truth. We're of God. We're of the Spirit. So there's these two categories, of evil and of the truth. You see it most clearly, actually, in the verse right before we read in chapter 3, verse 10, when John says, but by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you see what he's after. He's after categories and understanding that there are two groups in humanity. Now, we're going to look at this two-group division, and we're going to see that the way that he describes these groups is actually similar. He starts with who they are, okay, and their identity. Then he moves to what motivates them, or what's their heart's desire. And then, finally, he shows how that heart's desire, or how that nature shows itself, okay? In both of those groups, of the evil group and of the good group. So, if you look at Cain, for example, in verse 12. He is of the evil one. Okay, that's his nature. That's his identity. But then we also see what, how that identity thinks and loves and, and pursues things when it says, 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. So what was Cain's heart? What was his motive? It's this jealous hatred. Because his brother Abel, if you know the story, presented an offering that was acceptable to God. And his was not. So he was of the evil one. He had a heart that was jealous and hatred towards his brother. And that showed itself in murdering his brother Abel back in the book of Genesis. Now we know that, that murder... And insulting people are both symptoms of the same heart disease. Jesus teaches us that in Matthew 5. Right? So to hate our brother is a much lesser version, but of the same strain, the same DNA of murder, Jesus says. So that's kind of the breakdown of the evil one. That's the, the identity and the motive and the, the behavior of a person who's in that category. But then... Followers of Christ, he explains, are of the truth, we saw. We're of the Holy Spirit. We're loved by God. That's our identity. And the whole point of this text is for believers to do what believers should be doing, right? Which is kind of a funny thing, but we need reminders, right? And that's helpful. So he says, we are of the truth, we're of the Spirit, we're of God's love, and we ought to be, he kind of jumps, we'll jump over now, for now, the motive, we ought to be loving our brothers, Loving our sisters, it's a general term for the church, for those who are our fellow believers in the family of God. That's what we ought to be doing. But what about that motive? What does he say is at the heart of what motivates believers to love one another? Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Look what he does with that. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus' sacrifice is like the mold that shapes how we interact with the church and with other believers. He died to appease God's anger towards the whole family, right? And we put our needs as secondary and to the side for the sake of those we're in fellowship with in the church. And both of those things cost something, right? And we imitate Jesus in taking on cost by putting ourselves second behind our brothers and sisters in the church. See, Jesus gave him up specifically for the church, and we ourselves lay our lives down for the church as well. There is a correlation between your knowledge and understanding of the gospel and of who Jesus is and how you think and interact with the church. There is a correlation between those things because it would be really odd to say, I love Christ, right? I treasure him. He is my delight. He is who I follow. And then not imitate him. Or not love what he loves. And so it just naturally follows that if we're going to follow Jesus Christ and love him, that we're going to love the things that he loves. And we're going to imitate the way that he acts. And that's why it just makes sense that those who follow Christ follow him into that sacrifice and follow him into that love. So we are, we're people who are of the truth, we're transformed by God's spirit, we have God's love, and our motive, our heart, is directed by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's kind of the template that we're, that we're working off of, it's our foundation. And that understanding of Christ giving himself for us informs and directs how we interact with one another and that we would love one another and lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. Now that's pretty simple, but you'll notice that that this behavior that, that John assumes uh, is uh, 
He uses really strong language of this lifestyle for loving the church. Look at verse 11. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, uh, the second part there. Uh, actually, start in the beginning. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that? I mean, that's, a, that's a great thing to know. Like, what would you look for to understand that? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, he says. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives. Verse 17, it's God's love that's abiding in us that desires to get out. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, right? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So these things are so together in the mind of John that he presents them together. says if, if one comes and the other comes too, just inevitably and naturally through the work of God in salvation. We are to one, love one another and have regard for one another. And you can learn a lot about a person's faith to understand how they view and interact with the church. One time I was at, uh, at Chuck E. Cheese, of all places, which is kind of, kind of the natural return point for parents who have kids under the age of five. You just end up at Chuck E. Cheese a lot. And so I was there uh, at the end of the year soccer party for my son. I had Ella with me, our little daughter. And uh, they were getting ready to have the cupcakes and say the cupcakes out. And there was this little red-haired girl uh, who was standing by who was leaning over and starting to grab a cupcake, but they hadn't started yet. And so another parent turned to me and said, oh, you might want to tell your daughter you know, that it's not, not quite time for, to have a cupcake. And so being sarcastic and snide, the person I am in my flesh, so I turned to my uh, adopted daughter, uh, Ella, my Chinese you know, background daughter, said, yeah, it's still not time. You're doing great. You're waiting patiently for that cupcake. And this parent was just like, uh, I, don't, I don't quite get what's going on here. And I was, so I explained, and we went through the whole scenario. And, um, but I thought about that, right? She just naturally assumed because we looked similarly, right? Red hair isn't everywhere, and, uh, unfortunately. Um, and so you guys are you're, you're, you're a pair. You have a relationship, but if, if, if that parent had watched how Ella and I had interacted throughout the night, she would have seen that it was, it was, I was the one who was playing little games with her. And, and I was the one who was taking her to the potty when she needed to go and when she fell and hit her head in the little machine. And I was the one. And if she saw how I regarded Ella throughout the night, she would be able to assume something about our relationship. Right? Just in seeing in how we interacted. It's the same way with the church. You see how people interact and, and talk about and discuss and prioritize the church, and it tells you something of, of who they have regard for. I love that when the fires came out, I was asked this question all the time about our church, right? We merged two months ago. And questions like, are we okay? Is our church all right? Is there anyone in our church that's, that's struggling or, or still evacuated or needs help? Immediately, there's a response to, to understand that there's a sense of responsibility that we have to one another that's unique in the body of Christ. Now, it's not that we don't have regard for the outside world. We'll talk about that and what that looks like next week. But in the same way that you prioritize things when you got evacuated or when you saw that that fire line was in the area of your immediate family, you, you kind of work through uh, your priorities, Right? Your immediate family and your neighbors and your close friends. And there's a way of, of, of prioritizing these things. 
And that's the way that that love also works in the church. Galatians 6.10 says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a unique love that the body of Christ has for one another, that it's not optional. It's just, it's how we live as Christians. It's essential for being a Christian at all. Maybe this isn't the first place you would have thought. If you had a friend who's struggling with assurance, am I a Christian? Am I really following him? You might not necessarily point them to this, but I'd encourage you to. Do you have a love for the church? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? That shows that you've passed out of death into life. It's a sign of assurance. Now, like all assurance questions in Scripture, they're not intended to create kind of unnecessary suspicion of our faith, right? But if there's absolutely no evidence of love for the church in our life, then the Scriptures want to create a discomfort in us. They want to do that. And that's a good thing that they do. To create that discomfort that will lead to repentance and conviction. You see, these questions of assurance or of faith um, aren't meant to to, uh, be pondered on permanently. They're meant to do one of two things. Assure us, I do have love for the church. I am laying my life down for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Or if I don't, I need to repent and turn from that. And God, help me to have the kind of love that I need for my brothers and sisters in Christ. But they're not meant to just kind of keep you always toiling and spinning around this question. They send you in one of two directions. Encouragement or conviction. But they don't leave you where you are. That's good. Now let's, let's think about this. These two natures. Is this too simple? It's okay to ask questions like that of Scripture, right? It, it, poke around and and try to think, is this really accurate? Is this true? This is so black and white. I mean, life has a lot more gray in it than John is kind of saying. And it's been very encouraging to see people in our area be so generous, right? And so selfless. An area that is marked by secular uh, philosophy and secular ways of thinking. We should rejoice in that generosity that our community has. And so how do you explain that? Now, there's some simple ways to do it. Our appreciation, obviously, for first responders is seeing them, like, save all of our bacon, right? Like, it's it's been very obvious, right? And so we've reached out and been thankful uh, to that group in particular. So how is it, then, that if there's this just simple two-nature, what about the gray? What about when we don't act like the person we are? Well, it is possible for our actions not to be consistent with our nature for a, a period of time, right? Just like in Jesus' day, when the most respected religious people, these Pharisees and Sadducees, who knew all the Bible verses and, and learned it from a young age, and can tell you, you know, any place in the Old Testament, and Jesus calls them grave sites, right? They're empty, they're full of rottenness. Things weren't as they appeared, or Peter, who is following Christ, right? Probably the, uh, the most devoted person, you might say, betrays him in the hour of need. That's not incon- that's, he's not working within his category, <laughs> right? He's, he's not doing that. So things aren't always as they appear for a time. For a time. And John is speaking not to everything that we do, but who we are. I'm not a fish, but I can hold my breath. For a while, right? 
If you ever caught a fish, you know it survives even out of its natural element for a while and it flops around on the shore. So we're able to operate outside of our categories for a season. And that's part of the reason why John is writing this because he's saying in verse 17, for example, he's talking to Christians and seeing brothers in need and the possibility of them closing their hearts to those people. He's acknowledging that that's a possibility that needs to be avoided. That's the main reason why he's writing it. So who we are and what we do isn't always connected. It's not always synced up perfectly, right? We know that. But there are still only two natures in people, an evil nature and a good nature. Now that might feel a little um, deterministic, right? Like, well, you're just born either with a good nature or you're born with a uh, bad nature. Like having genes of being redheaded or not, right? It's just kind of like that. You're either good or you're bad. But we know that from the rest of Scripture, uh, you can turn to Romans 3 if you want later, to, to read an explanation that everyone is under sin. Everyone starts off with the nature of Cain, with a self-serving nature that wants independence from God, that wants to rebel against him and have it their own way and determine their life's purpose and do what they please. Everyone is born like that. But John helps us see how it is that a person switches from having an evil nature to becoming a person who is of the truth. In 1 John 3.14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's possible to pass out of death to life. That's the way he describes it. So how do you do that? Well, we can, we can tell that it's not you know, the people's credentials that pulls this off. They didn't earn this. They don't get credit for being this way. You can, you can tell that because Jesus' followers are described as having eternal life abiding in them. Or in verse 24, God's Spirit abides in them. Look at verse 17 when it asks that penetrating question. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does... God's love abide in him. He doesn't just say, man, that guy's a real disappointment. He's saying God's love's in that person. How could he possibly turn away from that person in need? Because God is the one who placed love in that person, right? So we see that it's not the the disciple, the follower of Christ, who gets the credit for being a good nature. It's dumped into them. They're changed and they're transformed into this new person who's no longer self-serving but is self-giving. Think, well, how does, how does God get in to a person then? How does that work? How does he break into the line of Cain and, and change that person? Well, our passage starts in verse 11, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. Later on in 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. The initial message that, that dumps God's love and God's truth and God's spirit into a person is the gospel. That's how that works. That's how a person is transformed in that way, from a self-serving person to a self-giving person. And that's why we're described as a people who are of the truth, because it's the message itself, it's the truth of the gospel that changes a person from being totally oriented for themselves to being totally oriented for other people. Only God can do that. And he's the one who has to. That's why humility is the appropriate response for being a Christian, and not snobbery. Because God 
is the one who broke you out of the line of Cain into the line of his son. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that's really important to understand. Christians are a product of grace. We are not self-made people. We are not. Any, any good that you find in a follower of Jesus Christ is placed there and created and developed by God himself. But if you're not a Christian here, you can't be what you aren't already. You can't give something you don't have. And so just like the Christian isn't born with a good nature, but is given a new nature in order to become a loving person, this also means that if you're not a Christian, you aren't going to have the ability to abandon your life without God's help and without a salvation. You see, we're able to increasingly let our lives go for Jesus' sake because we have the security of the gospel. We have all kinds of promises from him, right? He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's going to be with us. He's given us a word to guide us. He's given us eternal life. He's given us his spirit. And you can list 50 things that encourage the disciple of Christ to give up their life and say, okay, I'm secure. I'm good. So whatever happens to me on this earth, I'm fine with because I'm good. But if you're not a Christian then you don't have those promises. And so it makes sense that you would cling to your life and try to make your life about you because you don't have any assurance that there's any advantage to that, to letting it go. So the real question is, is the self-serving life worth it? And where does that life end? How does that one cash out? Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 34 to 38. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, self-giving. For whoever would save his life, cling to it, try to keep it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, self-giving, for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. What Jesus is saying in that passage is that self-serving life does not end well. As odd as that sounds, being totally committed to your own good and your own life and your own benefit ends up, ironically, in ruin. And Jesus is saying, get off that train. Don't end up in ruin. Find everlasting life in him. And you'll give your life away. Let's talk lastly about practicing self-giving. This passage is talking about love within the church, and we'll talk about other forms of love in the, the weeks to come, but I want to relay four things about self-giving that will help us start loving or continue loving in this way. First, self-giving is more than talk. Self-giving is more than talk. Look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. 
I've heard a lot of well-wishing going on. And that, it's not, there's not that anything is wrong with that, right? It's good to wish that people are well. But let's be clear. It's not loving. And why is that? Because wishing doesn't cost us anything. I can wish from a distance and I can send you positive thoughts or whatever it is that's being said from a distance without any cost to myself. And the church of Jesus Christ is to operate differently. We would certainly wish people well, of course. But we would, we would go further than that. Sometimes I wonder if I wish people well because I don't want to pay the cost of making sure that they are well. Tim Keller describes this love that's required of the believer in this way as, quote, meeting the needs of others with all the speed, the eagerness, the energy, and the joy with which we meet our own. Think about that. The speed, the eagerness, the energy, and the joy with which we meet our own. We know how to love ourselves really well. Are we as practiced? Are we as skilled? Are we as understanding of how to love others in the same way that we know how to love ourselves? So self-giving is more than talk. Number two, self-giving includes generosity and material possessions. Verse 17 is the question for us now, is it not? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does the love How does God's love abide in him? That is the question that is so relevant right now. And notice that it's not the man's unwillingness to give things that's the problem. The problem is that he's closed his heart to the man. Do you see that? That's the frightening thing. That's the thing that we need to be watchful of. Because there you'll find that as you try to meet needs right now, you will be overwhelmed quickly, right? And we cannot meet all the needs that you'll come across. And God understands that. In his sovereignty, he's, he's positioning his church and creating a unity I've never seen in Sonoma County, ever. A collaborative uh, work uh, that he's going to do through his church. He's doing that. So as we are overwhelmed by that need, what we need to be watchful of is when our hearts start closing. Oh, there they go again. Last time I helped them, they didn't say thank you. I've got enough problems in my life. Who's going to know if they deserve the help or not? Close, close. That's what we need to watch out for, is our hearts. To be open and willing and ready to serve in the way that God leads us. Not, you're not the Savior, you're not Jesus, you won't ever be him. It's really good news, right? He's got a lot of people, he's got a lot of plans, he's already working those things out in incredible ways. We each have a part, and you be faithful to that part, but you watch your heart, and don't let it close as you meet need, even if you're not the person to meet that need. We've noted that we've started a fire relief fund here at the church. There's a lot of parachurch help now that's bringing all kinds of supplies, and that's wonderful, and we thank God for them, but there will be a day that they leave, and so churches are stockpiling funds, essentially, for those days for the long-term recovery. And I encourage you to consider giving to that fund. What, is it, what, what does it mean for you to participate now in a disaster-laden area where our church is positioned to help in ways that others are not? 
We should not sit back. We should not just say, well, it didn't touch us. It didn't touch us potentially for a reason, right? That we might be mobilized and more useful. And so that's our position. Our fortune should serve their need. And so God has been leading a coalition of churches. We pray that God would continue to materialize these plans. Wonderful things that he's doing. We've we've been talking about the possibility of churches adopting families from other churches who have 20, 30 families that are out. There's no way that that congregation or those pastoral staff are going to be able to handle that, right? So how does that work? Maybe other churches adopt families and just make the long-term commitment to see them through the process and help them fill out all the FEMA paperwork and go and dig out ash and do all the things that are needed. Maybe that's a way we can ready our hearts to be useful. Tim and I are also feeling led to organize long-term support care for the pastors who've lost their homes. And ministry leaders, there's 10 Ten, which is a strategic thing, I think, for us to do because of how deeply uh, necessary it is for, for more churches to thrive through this season. And so what can we do to allow for churches and pastors to endure the doubly difficult duty of caring for their own families and caring for their congregations? How could we come alongside them and, and help in that effort? So we're going to share more about those efforts as they materialize. We have to think carefully. We have to work with other people and kind of establish a, a, a group um, understanding of how to approach that. Um, but be prepared for that when that comes. Don't wait. Don't sit back and wait for some program to emerge, right? You're going to run across needs in this church and in other churches that you're called to meet. So let's not wait. I'd love to get an email from Andreas Spoon a few days ago mentioning the need for Hearthstone Bible Camp. That's for helpers the next four Saturdays. They're going to be out there nine to four. The camp survived. Praise God, but it's a mess, right? That's a place where churches go and retreat and rehabilitate and what a strategic way that we can help not only them, but other churches as well. So, Andrea, are you here? Yes, we'll announce that. <laughs> so the next four Saturdays, if you want to head up there to be helpful for that. Um, being invested in in helping uh, the larger work that Christ is doing. So let's be proactive in preparing to give ourselves away. Let's do that. I know it's it's hard. There's probably a lot of logistical things that you need to work out in your own life. But think hard about how to give yourself away. Self-giving includes generosity and material possessions was the second one. I'll I'll pick up the pace. Third, self-giving is also ordinary stuff. Self-giving is also ordinary stuff. Not all self-giving is the spontaneous, wow, fireworks kind of opportune moments, right? Sometimes it's ministry, week in, week out. Children's, you know, people teaching kids right now. Sometimes it's showing up to church. That's an encouragement. I don't know if you know that or not. But showing up is an encouragement. Greeting and cleaning and praying and doing all the things Just simple ways that we can demonstrate love for one another and remind ourselves that my life is not for me. My life is for others. Maybe you meet a corporate need. We have hospitality team needs right now still going on. But sign up for a regular reminder that your life is not your own. If you're not serving, you need to serve. Serve somewhere. Jump in. Don't wait for all the stars to align and for your gifts to perfectly... Just jump in. You'll figure it out, right? I mean, that's how that works in practice. You start serving and you kind of figure out uh, over time where you're most helpful. But you do that just by jumping in. 
So if you are serving, show up, be consistent. Replace yourself for a ministry assignment if you have to miss. If you're not here, listen to the sermon online. Connect with someone in the church during the week. Don't give the church your your sloppy leftovers, right? Tithe. Be open to opportunities that are coming our way. Be ready to converse with people. Show up early. Come to service having read the passage, having prayed for receiving God's word, having prayed for the one preaching, and maybe ready to engage with someone in a way where you have to open your Bible. Or you, you know enough about a person that you know how to pray for, one, for someone specifically during the week. Sit by a stranger on purpose. Sing loud even if you don't sound that great. Thank someone who served you in a simple way. Stick around after and chat. Invite someone out to lunch and have a meaningful conversation. These sound like simple things. These sound like boring things. But if 115 people do that, it's extraordinary to the world. It is. It's heavenly. It says that we belong to a kingdom and a king that's different than everyone else. It's different. And it will be obvious. Sometimes self-giving is just the ordinary stuff. Lastly, self-giving is imperfect. Self-giving is imperfect. It's not by accident that kind of the, the boom of verses 16 through 18, that penetrating question that is our question, is followed by 19 through 20. Here's what it says. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Maybe this fire just revealed how wrapped up you are in your own little world. Maybe you haven't gotten close enough to the need that that you're not able to have compassion or empathy or you're not moved by what's going on around you. The good news is that this gospel message that changes us, that changes our identity and provides us a motive and changes the way that we act, is also what you need when you fail to love and when you imperfectly love and inconsistently love and when you have that self-centered day that just kind of spoils those opportunities that come your way or those navel-gazing seasons that we know so well, right? The gospel's for you too if you're in that boat. The question is not if you struggle to love your brother and sister in Christ, but when do you struggle and how does that work? A few great questions that I found from another ministry just in regards to um, ways that we close our heart, situations when the same need comes up again and again, when the person you're helping is annoying. I know, that's real, isn't it? happens. We're a diverse group of people, right? Anyway, when we think that someone else should be doing it, when we have problems of our own, I mean, there's all kinds of ways, right, that we can close our hearts to one another. I don't know them yet. We've only been merged for a couple months, you know, and the list goes down and down and down. This is part of the reason why we want to kind of reboot the purpose of this gospel-shaped mercy class that we're doing on Tuesday nights. We want to talk about those things and pray specifically that God would help us to grow in our love and our mercy for our neighbor, both here in the church and in our community. 
So if you're struggling to love, that's a great place. If you're doing well at loving, it's a great place <laughs> to be. So self-giving is imperfect. We know that. It will be until Jesus returns. But the gospel is present to turn us around. It's the good news, isn't it? That the gospel is powerful enough to take self-serving people and make us self-giving people. And then it's, it's, it's effective to keep turning us towards other people again and again and again. The gospel is amazing like that. And living for others in closing is where true life resides. Okay? I am not preaching a debtor's ethic up here, which means, or that message would be, Jesus died for you, now you, out of a cosmic guilt trip, Try to pay him back dutifully by volunteering for things that you hate to do, right? I mean, that's kind of what sometimes people think when it, when it comes to letting the gospel motivate what we're doing. And that's not, that's, what I just described is not self-giving, that's self-sufficiency. You see? There's a difference there. The antidote for selfishness is not to volunteer for things, it's to reevaluate what our Lord has done on the cross and the empty tomb. That is our medicine, that is our solution. It's understanding what 2 Corinthians 5 says, that he, quote, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. A life lived for Jesus will be a life lived for others, and it's a life of joyful freedom. Jesus is not calling you to minimal happiness by calling you to serve other people. He is calling you to the life of joy. And it's backwards, and it's hard to get at, the, at, at first, and, but then you start living it, and you realize that that's really true. It actually is more blessed to give than to receive. It's unbelievable. He is securing our joy by reminding us that our life is not about us. What a gracious thing for him to do. So let's remember that, redemption, as we move out into the community, as we continue to, to mesh as, as the church, may we understand this, this divine sense of responsibility and joy that is ours as the church of our Lord. Let's follow him into that sacrifice. Follow him into laying our lives down for one another. He'll, he'll be faithful to help us to do that. So let's be attentive to those things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the great self-giver. You as the eternal God, being worshipped and praised in, in every way that you deserve continually from all of eternity, decided to leave the, the comforts and the, the environment of heaven and to become and take on a human nature and to be born in a dirty place with a dirty government and imperfect, infallible people and systems of oppression and, and unfair speculation and, and judgment against you and eventually being arrested and even crucified like a common criminal. God, you have come so much farther than you've ever called us to go. And you have emptied yourself in ways that we will never understand. And so God, as the premier leader of this church and self-giver, we pray for your help. 
We want to try to keep our life and to still have it in you. And you know the futility of that. You know how impossible that is. And so I pray that you'd free us, God. Free us from self-preoccupation. Help us to be forgetful about ourselves and mindful of, of others and what you have done. We pray that the gospel would fuel this. We know that anything but the truth of what your son has done will fade and will run out of gas. And so we pray for a gospel incentive and motive and passion that's long-lasting, that burns bright in this church, and that the world might look on us and say, why are these people so committed to themselves when their own lives are difficult? May we be a beacon of light as we put these plans together to adopt families and and bless uh, other shepherds of congregations. And may we operate as a capital C church in effective ways in these days and and help us to prepare our hearts and our lives and our budgets and our our schedules for what you're going to call us to do to love this place. Help it start within our church. God, we want to make sure uh, that the household of faith is cared for. But God, I pray that it would be so cared for that it would just spill everywhere. Lead us in that, God. We need your help. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.